lunchtime, I tried to call my husband at lunch and he didn't answer. That was not uncommon, but normally he would call me back because he knew I was at lunch and I did not hear from him. And then my father-in-law called me and said, have you heard from Rusty? He was supposed to call me after he got back from the county. And I said, I thought you were working with him today. So that upset me. And he said, no, he called me and told me not to come, that he would call me later. So my son got home from school that afternoon and saw his truck in the driveway. I thought he had come in, was taking a nap or something. And my son found him at home. Welcome to the Real Talk 238 podcast with your host, Denise Lee, a licensed professional counselor and nationally board certified counselor in the state of Alabama. The focus of the Real Talk 238 podcast is to have real conversations concerning taboo topics that people in the church may find themselves struggling with or feel they may not be able to talk about. The topics discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast are intended strictly for informational and educational purposes only. These topics are not a substitute nor does it replace professional medical, psychiatric, psychological, or mental health advice, nor is it a substitute for a diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. All right now, let's get started. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to today's episode on the Real Talk 238 podcast. Today, this topic is a sensitive topic and I'm just putting a trigger warning there ahead of time because the topic is a taboo topic, but it is also very sensitive and does not need to be heard around young children. This episode has to deal with suicide. And my guest was Kristen Folger. At the time of this recording, Kristen was serving on the Georgia Ladies District Committee. Since that time, she has told me her schedule had to change and some things in her life, so she's no longer serving in that position. I know that Kristen has served the Georgia Ladies District well and has made them proud. So again, this has a trigger warning on this. Please do not listen to this around young children. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help. You don't have to do this alone. You can call 988 for a crisis intervention hotline, or you can text the crisis text line at 741-741. There is always hope out there, but you just have to reach out for help. You don't have to do this alone. I hope this episode will bless you. And if you know somebody who's struggling with suicide or somebody who is a survivor of somebody that had completed suicide, please share this episode with them. Have a great and wonderful day as you listen to this interview with Kristen Folger. Hey, 
everyone. Thank you today for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast. I am your host, Denise Lee. Today, I'm excited to have my guest, Kristen Folger. She's from Evans, Georgia. She's a patient advocate in a dentist office, and her husband's name was Russell. They were married for 28 years. She has three children. One is still at home, and I think he said he was 19. Yes. And she has one pet. I called it a Chihuahua Russell or a Jackawawa. <laughs> Jackawawa. Jackawawa. That fits him, I think. <laughs> so he's a combination between a Jack Russell and a Chihuahua. What is his name? Uh, Pepper. Pepper. And I, I, from the sound of it, what you described, he is peppery. And then you've been in church for 35 years. You attend First UPC of Augusta. And you currently serve in ministry. You teach family life and adults. You do first impressions team. I didn't know what that was. And you says it was greeting. And I said, that is the most important job you could possibly have at a church. And then you're also the sectional rep for the Georgia District Ladies Ministry. Then you have served in ministry for 28 years as an assistant pastor's wife, a pastor's wife, a Sunday school teacher, and music. Are you involved with music? I sing in the praise team. Do you play at all? I do not, but all my kids do. Did you teach them? No. No. (laughs) Okay. We made a way for them to learn. That was important. You said you describe yourself as you're a people person a talker, you're organized, a wannabe minimalist, you enjoy reading road trips and local restaurant, and serving God is the best thing you have ever chosen to do. And then a fun fact about Kristen is, and I love this, she can drive a stick shift, a John Deere, and a ZT mower. (laughs) (laughs) How are you today, Kristen? I'm great. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for the invitation. What an honor for me. So how did you learn how to ride or drive a ZT mower? Oh. Because that's the one with the handles, right? Yes. Yes. And the handles. I did a lot of donuts in the in the learning of driving the ZTR mower. One side goes forward and one side goes backwards. So you have to coordinate them together to go direction. You push them both to go forward and both you can pull back to go in reverse. But when you want to turn, you have to coordinate yourself. <laughs> yes, very exciting. My husband did lawn care for about three or four years, the last three or four years of his life. And then when my kids were real young, he worked for himself and did lawn care and maintenance. Yes, I had to learn helping him and assisting him doing that. The weed eater, the blower, Everything. all those things. Yes. So how big of a John Deere did you drove? The John Deere tractor, I'm not sure the size. It's a 1023, so it's big. I have no idea either. Yeah, it's a big tractor. (laughs) It has a dump and a scoop and a bush hog attachment. Yes, I can drive that. It's like a a small garden tractor or or is it really big? Yeah, it's not the biggest one. It's a small tractor, but bigger than the ZTRs. And a riding mower. Yes, bigger than that. We have a John Deere tractor and it's bigger than a riding mower, but it has the bucket on it and the bush hog and I won't get on it. Oh, it's fun. You should learn to drive it. It feels empowering. I can do these things. Well, there you go. Maybe I'll run out there and jump on it. Today, the reason why I asked you to be on the podcast is because, I'll be honest, when I was doing the training, I have to be very careful who I was allowing to come through those trainings. And when I ran across you, I was even a little extra cautious because your husband had completed suicide. And I wasn't sure how 
how well that would go over. Because one thing, you have to do your own healing in the process after something like that happens. And I wanted to make sure where you were at as far as your own healing goes. And I also had talked to your pastor and he was very supportive of you doing it, which I really appreciate that. He definitely has your back. What made you decide to reach out to do the training? I saw you promoting it and requesting participants months before I submitted my application. My husband battled with depression. He had been diagnosed with PTSD. He had a bipolar diagnosis. And really the past two years probably of his life, we sought counseling, did different medications. He had been hospitalized in a rehab type center. It was kind of a lifelong thing for him, the anxiety and the depression. He had suffered abuse and he was very open with his battles and he talked about it and he felt like he it needed to be out in the open so that he could be healed and that he knew so many other people battled those same struggles. It was sort of an aspect of our ministry for a long time. When I saw the training, if had he not died, I would have still been interested in the training. When I first saw you advertise for it, I hesitated myself. I didn't want to step into something that would be upsetting or stir up hurts or trigger hurts for me. I feel like I'm still in the healing process. Prayed about it. And I think you did a final push. All right, I'm going to offer my last training. Is anyone else interested? And I prayed about it. I had talked to my pastor's wife about it. She said, you should try it and do it. And I think when I applied and then you first reached out to me for more information, because you didn't know me or my story in it. You cautioned me as well. This is a heavy subject. Are you sure you're ready for this? I said, you know what? I've prayed about it. If you feel like you know the content of it, if you feel like it'd be too much for in my situation, I'm okay with that. But I was thankful that I was after we talked and you felt like we'll work through this and we'll get through it. I felt like the information was very helpful to me. And my role in the church, people do come to me and talk to me about heavy subjects like this. And I want to be sure that I'm offering helpful information, not just my own personal story, but things that are clinically proven to help and to work in situations like this. There is help out there. There's help available. Suicide is not the answer. And I don't want people to think it's the answer. So I've got to have something else to point them in the right direction. Yes, we need God. Yes, we need prayer. Yes, getting in the word and encouraging yourself in the word. All those things are so important and so necessary. You can't fight the battle of anxiety and depression without those things. But at the same time, it affects you so much physically and emotionally. You've got to have a tangible, real person to wrap their arms around you and say, we're going to get through this together. You've got to have a real person show up at your house and say, come on, we're going to eat a healthy meal. Come on. You need to get some rest, get away. Let's drive to the beach today. Sometimes you've got to have a real person to do that. Just out of curiosity, because I'm thinking back to all the different trainings I did, but the one you came to in particular, because there was other individuals involved in that training and some of the information they were discussing got a little bit heavy. How were you able to maneuver through that? For me, I have a good support group. We have always made an effort to be friendly and have friends. So I have some close friends I can talk to about things like that. I have always been a person who keeps a journal. So I write my thoughts down. I have voice memos on my phone. If I drive and I can't 
be writing, the Lord's dealing with me about something, or I've got stuff on my mind, just saying it out loud and writing it down kind of helps put those thoughts in some kind of order, helps them make sense. So they're not just all jumbled around. Sometimes I just need a good cry. So crying it out, um, talking with a friend, those help me put those heavy thoughts, helps them, them to be put in order and file them away in their place. They don't always need a place at the forefront of my mind. You and your husband, when he was still alive, you were pastoring? Yes. How long had you been pastoring by that point? We were in Waynesboro since 2009, 11 and a half years. We were in Waynesboro. During that time, you'd mentioned that things were just getting gradually worse. They were, yes. In the fall of 2018, prior to that, he had sold cars. He had been a car salesman for about 12 years, was very successful, stayed very busy. He was very close to his grandmother and his grandmother passed away in 2008, I think. And he had an episode that he called a dream and he's talked about it. I don't really talk about it that much, but you know, the counselor, there's different terms for it. You're probably more familiar than me, but it was almost really, it was like a delusion he imagined that a car had been stolen and he was the last one that had the key to it. And he was responsible for that car. He felt like he ended up going to counseling for a while after his grandmother died because the death that impacted him so greatly and he wasn't processing his grief very well. He never was a good sleeper. He wasn't getting enough sleep and he just was a very nervous person. He loved people. He loved being around people, but his nerves and his anxiety would get the best of him. It it all kind of happened all at the same time, him having this dream, what he called about the car being stolen. And he felt the weight of that responsibility. They assured him, the owner and his GM, like Russell, nothing has been stolen. Everything's fine. Nothing's missing. And he just couldn't, it just got in his head that he was responsible for that. So that was around 2008, 2009, when he first went to counseling and first started on a antidepressant to kind of help with that anxiety. On and off through the years, he would get on his medicine, off his medicine, on his medicine, off his medicine, which is not helpful. That is very detrimental. He became a diabetic. He was diagnosed with diabetes after a crazy, strange surgery he had to have. He had a heart attack. He was diagnosed with diabetes in 2015. So then he started on a bunch of medicines for diabetes. He wasn't a big guy, but he could eat like nobody's business. Like he's famous for his eating habits. He could eat. Oh my goodness. He loved food. It really was kind of symptomatic of some of his obsessive issues and his anxiety. So then he had a heart attack in 2017. Then he started all kinds of medicines for that. He had two stents put in his heart. His heart was blocked. He had two main huge blockages. One was like 99% blocked. It's a miracle that he didn't have a massive heart attack and died then. But just the combination of all his medicine and the stress from his job, he changed jobs. And then in 2018, in the fall, that summer, he had started cutting grass. And I think the combination of the heat, he needed to go back and get on his medicine. So he started some new medicine. He was not sleeping. He probably was also severely dehydrated. If he was working out in the heat. Yes. Heat in the South. Yes. The humidity. He would be soaking wet. His wallet in his pocket would be soaking wet. That's how much he would be sweating. And that was the first time he went back and forth to the doctor like three or four times over two weeks that he really was starting to have a breakdown at that point. 
he would just come home and be crying and be super emotional, which was not like him. And he just was not handling just the normal everyday life things he was not handling well. So thankfully he had a friend that recognized that had sort of been in a similar situation said, Russell, you're not yourself. You need more help. You should be seeing a counselor. Let me get you to call a friend. And just for right now and see where she can connect you. And thankfully she was apostolic counselor. And she said, he just kind of was explaining to her things that were happening in his life, how he wasn't functioning. He wasn't sleeping. He was super emotional. And she said, you need to go to the ER. He called me and said, sister doctor recommended I should go to the ER. There's help for me. I said, if that's what you feel like, we had already at that point made a plan for him not to be alone. He did not express to me any kind of suicidal thoughts, nothing like that. But I knew he wasn't functioning right. He was confused. So his dad had started working with him at that time. And but he was hospitalized for about 10 days. And that was the first time that we walked into that hospital and the triage nurse, you know, why are you here today? And he said, I have been struggling with suicidal thoughts. That was my first time hearing anything like that from him. When you heard him say that, what was your thoughts? As a therapist, I hear that. I mean, it's not uncommon that I hear that often. The first time you hear that, it's like, whoa. Right. What were your thoughts when he said that? Honestly, I was shocked. I knew how bad he was struggling. I don't know if it was my naivety or I just didn't want to think about that, but I never connected that he would want to hurt himself or just want his life to end because of the things he was going through. I always prayed and prayed for him and I trusted God like God was going to get us through this. From me and my perspective, I can tend to be a little Pollyanna and I look on the bright side of things that wasn't working for him. It was more than just let me just turn the light on and flip a switch. He was in a dark place. My first thought was, oh my God, this is real. Like something tragic could really happen. I had to get it together. I couldn't break down. He was breaking down. I couldn't break down. I had to be strong. And I think he said something very important. He was in a dark place. He was dehydrated, especially when you have, you're dehydrated, your brain can play massive. Right. It can do all kinds of interesting stuff. Right. Because you don't have enough water. You're not hydrated. The other thing too, is he was diabetic. People with diabetes have a higher rate of mental health issues. They struggle with it. It's not because something's wrong with them. It's just kind of par for the course. Right. There's an imbalance there. Now in the hospital, and I sort of, of course, playing everything over in my mind, once he said he felt suicidal, honestly, they treated him like royalty. Mr. Folger, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're getting help. They treated him so well. We're going to get help for you. There's a counselor here. We're going to have come in and talk to you. My regret is they didn't check him out any physically once he said that. And I think so much of his anxiety and depression was tied to his physical issues. Right. He did not have any real sickness unto death. Wasn't cancer or leukemia or any of these things we think will kill you. But it definitely degenerated his mind and his thought process, the type of medicine he was on, it all affected him physically. His sleeping was horrible. He had horrible sleep patterns and took sleeping pills. I wish that they would have checked him out more physically 
if they could have handled some of his physical problems, maybe it would have balanced him a little bit more mentally and he could have focused on that. There's no way to go back and change it now. The second time he was hospitalized, he also had physical issues going on. The same time he had been isolated due to COVID and had been sick like the whole month of January and had pneumonia. He went to the ER. Of course, I couldn't go with him. He spent all night in the ER and they really didn't do anything for him. They said his oxygen wasn't low enough to keep him or admit him. And they sent him home. If it goes lower than 90, come back. He had a lot of physical issues going on as well as the mental. They weren't always addressed properly. Would that have made a difference in the long run? I think for a lot of people, you'd need to be checked physically. You need to be under the care of a doctor because it's all related. It is. God made our bodies like that. There's chemical imbalances and there's hormones, all those kind of things. God, we're physical beings as well as spiritual beings. And I'm really glad you said that because even in the training, I think I talked about that. And I talk about it in my practice. If you look at a stool that has these different legs and you look at our lives, okay, you've got spiritual, you've got emotional, you've got mental, and you've got physical. Right. If one of those legs are off and you stand on that stool, what's going to happen? You're going to fall over. It's not a complete, oh, well, that's demonic. No, it's not always demonic. No. I mean, if you're sleep deprived, they did studies with puppies and they purposely have made them sleep deprived and those puppies physically did not last very long, which is sad for the puppies, but that was the reality of it. So we need sleep. We need water. Yes. We need to have our hormones balanced. And anybody who comes to my practice, that's one of the first questions I ask is, when has the last time you've had a checkup? Because it's important. Yes, it is. How many times had he went to the hospital? Well, that was the first time that happened. And they let me stay with him for several hours normally until they found a bed for him in-house place. Our hospital did no longer have a psych ward. But because he expressed that he felt suicidal, they were obligated to keep him for a period of time, like a 72-hour hold. So they found a bed for him locally. He begged for them to let me stay with him. Of course, usually they make everyone leave and you have to be by yourself because that doctor doesn't know who your triggers are and don't know that I'm the best person for him. But he's like, please, I need my wife here. That was the first time he ended up in the hospital for 10 days at a local behavioral health center. The first counselor they connected him with, he didn't really jive with and ended up switching to another counselor. The second time he was hospitalized was he had gotten out of the hospital five days before he died. He had spent five days in the hospital in January before he passed. He wanted to go himself. My daughter got married in February and we had driven to Tennessee for the weekend to help her move her things up here. And right when we got home, we came home on a Monday. That was a holiday. I knew he hadn't hardly slept. He didn't really sleep the whole time. We didn't want him to come on the trip because his health was so bad. He had had COVID. My brother-in-law was in the hospital at that time with COVID and spent several weeks there. It was just a lot going on that month of January, but we had to drive the truck and trailer and he just didn't want us to do that alone. So he drove vehicle up here. We worked in my daughter's house that they had purchased painted and I knew he was not himself. He was super confused about things and couldn't sleep. We drove home and this was something that was very out of character for him, but the trailer that we drove up here, he actually left it here. The pastor that was here 
asked him about the trailer and he said, well, I've been thinking about selling it. My truck doesn't pull it very well. And he left it. The pastor said, well, I probably can have someone interested. I can sell it for you. And so my husband said, sure, that'd be great. And left it here in Tennessee. And that was totally out of the ordinary. That did not match what my husband would normally do. So that was very out of character. Yes, it was very out of character for him. I talk about that in the training. Like if they start doing things really out of character, do you think at that point that he was contemplating suicide? I've thought about that. Honestly, I don't know. It was very out of character for him to do that. I think he was kind of in the mode of just, I need to unload some of the stress. That was just an issue he didn't want to have to think about. That's what I think. I know that he fought those feelings for so long. He did not express to me, but then we got home on a Monday night. I know he didn't sleep well. I had to go back to work that Tuesday and he got up super early in the morning, got showered and he said, I'm going to the ER. And I said, well, you know, we talked about it. I don't want you to go by yourself. I'm going to call my work right now and I'll, I'll drive you. And I said, well, let's see if we can call your counselor and see if she can at least see you. I said, you know, if we go to the ER that I don't know where you're going to end up, Rusty, they might put you in Athens. You could go anywhere. And I was thinking that I would upset him to go off, but he's saying, no, I need to go. So we did put a call into the counselor. We started to make our way to the hospital, but by the time we got there, she had called back and said, no, come see me in my office. She got in the bed actually in the hospital where she worked at. She made sure that he was there because of everything going on with COVID. I mean, I couldn't go in with them. I couldn't do anything like that. I think kind of, they were just holding him when he got out. I picked him up. Uh, that was a Tuesday. I picked him up on that Saturday and he looked terrible. I knew he hadn't slept. We drove straight from the hospital. I said, do you want to go check on Ralph, his brother? And he was in the hospital in the COVID unit. I said, we can go park and FaceTime him. So he was just kind of whatever. So we drove to the hospital parking lot and tried to FaceTime his brother. I knew his brother was worried about him. We hadn't really been able to talk that much. We drove over there and did that and prayed for Ralph from the hospital and went home. And he just, he was not himself. And that was the last week he was alive. He had a lot of confusion. He always handled our finances because he just was anxious about it. He paid things in person. He did a lot of things that were, I think, unusual, but they were normal for him. He liked to pay bills in person. He liked to go into the office and meet the people. He didn't like paying things online. He didn't like banks. He liked paying cash. Just those kind of things made him comfortable. I need to know my bills are paid. I need to know this is taken care of and handled. But that week, and really he had kind of been like that that whole month. I need you to pay this for me. Here's the money. I need you to pay it online. But then he'd say, did you pay that? I'm like, yes, Rusty. I screenshotted the receipt. I sent you a text. He needed extra reassurance for those kind of things. And that was not like him. He always was a very confident person outside of his anxiety. He was confident in who he was and his work ethic. He derived a lot of his worth from his work. He liked to be busy. He worked himself way too much. He did not like to rest. I mean, that was detrimental to him. But that last week, he had a lot of confusion. Did we do this? Did we do that? Remind me again what I'm supposed to do here. Those kind of things weren't not like him. He was not himself. It was almost like I can almost relate it to some kind of dementia. He was not thinking clearly at all. He had had a couple things 
with his job, he was self-employed. He had had some issues. He was trying to get out of so much physical work and going back to selling some landscaping material and things like that. And he had been doing that. I had worked with him through 2020 doing that before I went back to work and that wasn't going well for him. So he let go of a place that he had rented, but he had rented a lot that he, where he kept his equipment and kept some landscaping materials and he had let that place go. And so he had gone to renew his business license and the county would not renew his business license because he had too many vehicles and he was trying to just change his business address to our home. And the county said, no, that's a residential area. You can't register all these vehicles to your home. They wouldn't allow us to do that. He was super upset about that fact that the county's trying to put me out of business. I heard him say that to his father and just a couple different people. He was really struggling with that fact. And I'm like, that's not the case at all. He just had this mindset of all or nothing. It was very negative and it just wasn't an accurate depiction of what was happening. I think over the past two years or so, he had really become very negative. He always was the big picture person. I was the detail person. You know, he can always look beyond. We can work past this. Money's never a problem. It's never an issue that there's always a solution. He always had that mindset until he didn't. And really the last two years, the depression, I don't know. Sometimes I think the counseling that he was going through, I think it's important to talk about things in society in general. People are very open with their struggles and we should normalize this and normalize that. And while I think that's true, we also, as the church, we need to counterbalance. Yes, you might be going through something, but there is an end to the story. There is something beyond this valley. There is a mountaintop experience. Instead of just where you, it feels like it's being dragged out forever. Yeah. You know, to dig out a root of bitterness, you have to dig it up and throw it away. You just can't keep tilling and tilling and tilling and tilling and tilling because that causes more hurt. Right. Exactly. I primarily work with trauma and PTSD and grief and depression. It kind of all goes together. I've seen posts where people think that when you work with trauma that you dig up everything from the past. No. No. You only work on the things that are the most painful because... One thing I've learned along the way in my own life, like you said, that root of bitterness, you've got to learn to forgive whatever it is. And maybe God wants you to work on that particular thing. But once you get through it, that's it. You don't have to go back to it. I think that's what you were saying, that we don't need to keep digging and hashing over and over. Right. He loved his counselor and she was very helpful to him. But I think for him spiritually, it was not always counseling is helpful, but it has its limits. We've got to have God in the mix. And my husband was a spiritual person. He loved the Lord. He prayed, he fasted. I don't think his issues, I know him. He did try to forgive. He did try to let go. But at the same time, he had scars in his life from childhood issues and being abused, sexual abuse, that kind of thing scars you and changes you. And he dealt with that. A lot of saints deal with that and it's not demonic. It's not always oppression. It's scars. God can't miraculously take those things away, but he does teach us and show us that we can manage those feelings. We can get beyond those emotions. There is healing. He can repair and restore. That's it. He can. It doesn't miraculously disappear. You know, there's no magical unicorns here. No, if it did, if God, and I'm not saying God couldn't do that because he could, but 
if that was the case, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> I do tell my clients, like my whole goal is to be worked out of a job. And I'm like, do you know what that means? And they're like, um, that we don't need to come as often. I said, that's right. I'm not here to hold you forever. But the world is degenerating, it's deteriorating. And physically we are, I think spiritually, that is a symptom as well. That's just part of the sin that entered into the world. On the day that he did complete suicide, what was going on that particular day? He had gone on that Thursday. He died on a Friday. That Thursday, he had gone to see his counselor. He had gone to see his regular doctor because while he was in the hospital the week before, they did not change any of his medications and he wanted them to. He had asked them to. Then he got a prescription at his doctor's appointment for a medication that he had been on previously that he had had side effects from it. He was having a tremor. He was sometimes at a loss for words. It was the medicine for seizures an antipsychotic medicine that he had been on previously and it did help him. And actually he really performed better while he was on that medicine. He took it for probably six or eight months, but he was developing a tremor and some muscle weakness. So they decided to take him off. That was in October of 2020. He got off of that one medicine between his heart attack and his diabetes and his anxiety he took about 13 medicines a day, 13 different prescriptions. So that happened on Thursday. He had gone to the doctor. And so when I was leaving for work that Friday morning, his dad had been working with him every day that week. I didn't know he had actually called his dad and said, don't come today. I'm going to the county to see about my business license. And so I didn't know that. I said, let me call your doctor today and ask him about the medicine. I know there's multiple medicines. I said, don't fill that one. I'm going to call the doctor today and ask him about it. See if there's an alternative because he didn't want to go back on that same medicine. He said, if I'm on that medicine, I can't work. It affected him. And he was struggling preaching some and speaking because he couldn't always say the word he wanted to say. I left for work Friday morning. We had talked about we were going to watch the IVC concert that night. I said, let's just stay home this weekend. Just chill out. We were going to watch the IBC concert that night. So I'm going to call the doctor. And I left for work around eight o'clock. I always listened to my Bible reading. I listened on the way to work in the car. And the Lord really spoke to me through the scripture. I had been reading in Isaiah and the Lord, I felt like gave me a word. I was just crying and praying in my car on the way to work. And I told myself, okay, I'm going to send this to our family text because it was so good. I felt like the Lord just was speaking. There was going to be restoration. The cities the enemy had torn down were going to be rebuilt. We had been praying about a vision or a word. He normally in January would do his vision casting for the church and that had not happened. And I had been praying, Lord, give him a word for this year. What can we look forward to? And the Lord had given me a word for the year, endure. And I was like, I didn't like that word because to me that meant trouble. Like, what am I going to have to endure? And I said, Lord, are you really sure about that? Um, he did. He said, you're going to have to endure some things. You're going to go through some things. That morning, left work around eight o'clock. I felt like the Lord gave me a promise in the car and I was going to text our family text. The Lord's going to restore what the enemy has taken down. And when I got to work, things happened before I even got to my desk and I got distracted and I never sent that text out. At lunchtime, I tried to call my husband at lunch and he didn't answer. 
that was not uncommon, but normally he would call me back because he knew I was at lunch and I did not hear from him. And then my father-in-law called me and said, have you heard from Rusty? He was supposed to call me after he got back from the county. And I said, I thought you were working with him today. So that upset me. And he said, no, he called me and told me not to come, that he would call me later. So my son got home from school that afternoon and saw his truck in the driveway. I thought he had come in, was taking a nap or something. And my son found him at home. So he called 911 and then called my daughter who worked nearby and said, come home. Dad has hurt himself and called me at work. I was getting ready to leave for the day. I worked about 25 minutes away, worked for the city of Augusta then and said, dad hurt himself. I picked up my work phone and went to call 911. I said, Drew, call 911. Is he okay? Don't leave him alone. And he said, no, mom, no, no, mom. He said that the police is already here. Did he tell you at that point how he had hurt himself? He did. He did. Yes. My my son found him. He shot himself. They were gun collectors and knife collectors. We had taken all the weapons out of the house the first time my husband was hospitalized. We took them out of the house, stored them at my brother-in-law's house. Uh, so we had no weapons in the house, but I thought my son had kept his weapon in the closet. He had a, a rifle had it in the closet. I had no idea that it was very upsetting for my son when we first took them out of the house. That makes it so real. When dad's being hospitalized, we have to take the weapons out of the house. He can't come home if we have them here. We did that. They were all stored at my brother-in-law's house. They're hunters and all those kind of things. He had shot himself at home. And Drew did tell me that. All my coworkers in my office that I work all heard that. I called 911. My son was on my cell phone saying, no, mom, no, the police are here. I've already called them. So I was on the other line with 911 and, you know, what's your emergency? What's your address? Do you need an officer or ambulance? And I was like, I don't know. My son said my husband shot himself. As soon as I said the address out, she's like, ma'am, the officers are already on the scene. I'll patch you through. An officer on the scene called me on my cell phone and said, I'm so sorry, Ms. Fulcher. And I was like, wait, no, don't. You're still at work at this point. I was at work. Even today, I can hear my voice getting very shrill. Like, this is not really happening. Of my coworkers, of course, all jumped up, were all around me. They all heard me say that my husband had shot himself. And they were there. You know, I had grabbed up my purse. I had my phone in my hand. They were walking me out saying, let me drive you home. You can't drive home like this. I'm like, I'll be fine. I was not thinking rationally. Because you're just thinking about getting to your husband. Yes. And my son, I knew he was there alone. The officer said, I'm sorry, Miss Folger. And I was like, wait, are you telling me he didn't make it? And he said, no, ma'am, he's passed. He asked me where I was. And I said, I'm getting in my car. I'm driving home, but I work downtown. He said, do I need to send an officer to come get you? And I was not having that. I was getting to my son. I was getting home. One of my coworkers, we had a mutual friend that I went to church with. And so I was on the way home. I immediately tried to call my sister-in-law because she doesn't live far from me. I wanted someone to be with my son. I didn't get her on the phone. So I called now my pastor's wife. They live a couple miles from me. And I said, Robin, where are you? She knew something was wrong from my voice. And Kristen, what is wrong? I said, Drew's at home and I need someone to go home. She started getting upset because I was upset. I said, Rusty has hurt himself. 
and I need somebody to be with Drew. So she was super upset. Thankfully, her sister was with her in the car and had the presence of mind to call Pastor Maddox. And he happened to be at home. They lived two miles from me. Pastor Maddox had also lost his dad when he was about 17 years old. Drew was almost 18. They called Pastor Maddox. He got there before I even got there. When I hung up with her, I got another phone call from a friend. And he said, Kristen, what is going on? And I said, why are you calling me? That was not a person who would normally call me. And he said, well, you know, our coworker called and said something happened to Rusty. I just started bawling. He kept me sane on the way home. I tell him to this day, you are a godsend to me. You kept me talking enough for me to drive home. I was very upset, but he talked to me on the phone and kept my mind clear enough where I wasn't having a wreck or running red lights or anything like that. By the time I got home, my daughter Savannah was there and the coroner, I don't know how many officers, my husband was a chaplain for the ambulance service. And he was a volunteer chaplain with Burke County, where our church was, and also with the city of Grovetown, which is not far from us. And he served on the Columbia County, the ATV unit, which is part of their sheriff's department. He is a lover of law enforcement. So there was about eight officers there. Some of them knew him. That was hard. The coroner came out and spoke with me and talked to me about his day. Whatever on the death certificate, I didn't know how they would do that. They have the time of death when they found him there, when the coroner called him dead. But he probably took his life pretty soon after I went to work that day. No one, his last phone call was like at nine something that morning. He had missed calls all day. I know he didn't sleep. Why? You know, I have no, I have no answers why he did that. I know he was a fighter for him. I don't see it as giving up for him and his mindset. He was a kite. Okay. I'm just going to take care of this once and for all. I'm just, I'm going to be done with this. And I think he was just in so much pain and anguish and he was confused and he made a permanent decision. He loved us. He loved his family. He loved serving the Lord. I've heard people say that's a sin, or you can talk people out of suicide by telling them it's sin. They're in danger of hellfire. No, you you can't. I don't think that's helpful. Mm-mm. That that's not helpful. I heard another interview of a of woman that lost her husband to suicide, and they lived a Christian life. She said, "I had a dream of him calling from hell." I just can't view my husband like that. I think God is more merciful than that. In my situation, my husband lived a godly life. He was a good dad. He did everything he could to make sure that we had a good life. I am who I am because of him. And he loved the Lord. He wasn't trying to take control or take power in his hands. He was in pain. Right. And I think one of the important things, and you've talked about it, he hadn't been sleeping. He probably was dehydrated. He had some physical stuff. His hormones were off balance and he had diabetes. He had all these different things. Sometimes people, when they come across these situations or individuals who've gone through like what you've gone through, they don't always know what to say. And sometimes they say the most stupidest and ignorant stuff. Right. And that's being as polite as I can. (laughs) For those of you who live in the South, you're going to completely understand this. Anywhere else, you may not have an idea, but... In the South, it's very common when somebody passes away, we naturally say, I'm sorry, and we put our head down. 
I don't know if that's a sign of respect or a sign of shame or what it is. I have no idea. I know what body language tells me, but I, I was just thinking about when my mother had passed away. It wasn't due to suicide. She had a whole bunch of physical stuff. I remember being so angry when people would tell me I'm sorry. I was like, to the point that I finally, one day, this poor lady, bless her heart, she said, I'm sorry. And I looked at her and I, I just had it up to my eyebrows. I was like, mm -hmm. what are you sorry for? And of course, she had that <laughs> knee-jerk reaction. Yes. How did you maneuver through that when people would come up to you and say, I'm sorry? I say, me too. I'm sorry too. I'm sorry he ended it. His life, you know, I'm sorry that he had so much more life to live. I think I give people a little grace in that. It is hard to say. I have had to repent sometimes when I have said the wrong thing to people, or I've said at least anything is the worst thing to say. And I've probably said that a million times. I have learned some lessons through this and what to say and not to say. It's okay to be sorry. I know that means their heart hurts. And I've learned to say that my heart hurts for you. You know, when people say, I'm sorry, or at least. Oh, the at least. That's the one that kills me. <laughs> at least, well, at least. That's that silver lining that doesn't make it any better. Right. For me, that right away, that this has probably been the most incredible thing to me. But right away, people were saying, you can marry again. You're young. I'm like, you know what? I don't have to marry again. I loved being married. I loved my husband. I loved my life that we had. I'm not opposed to marriage or even marrying again. I'm not opposed to that, but I don't have to. That my ministry and my life is not predicated on me having a male companion. Right now, I'm more worried about my kids, making sure that they heal from this and that they know they have a whole life to live. We don't have to be depressed. Our life did not end that day. Our life changed and things don't look the same. The future doesn't look the same. Definitely does not. How did you maneuver? Because of course, you're going to deal with all the stages of grief. You have the anger, the bargaining. I don't know if you've got to the place yet where there are days that it's this is what it is. And I'm okay with it. Right. And then it's kind of like this cycle that just goes on. Was there ever a time through this that you got angry with God? Really, I have not. I have not. I've gotten Two different things have made me angry and it seemingly really is insignificant if you look at it, but I received something in the mail for widows and it said the widow of this. And that really, that would make me angry. That made me angry. And then when I read the material, it was geared for older people. I feel like I'm in the middle of my life. I'm not an elder. So whoever sent this, it was like no thought put into it. No, I, that's not true because it, <laughs> I mean, it came from the church. It came oh. from, <laughs> but for me in my situation, it was fitting and it was encouraging, but it was not directed for people in my situation. It was, I'm not going to say it wasn't thoughtful because it was, but they don't know me. Maybe they could have readjusted it a little yes, bit. You yes. Know? <laughs> that would have been helpful. Yes. For young widows, the trajectory of your life is very different than if you have, if you're older and you've lived a full life with your spouse. I mean, we were married a long time, but I'm in the middle of my life. I have a whole lot of life left. The Lord has changed my direction. For me right now, trying to deal with that, at first it was shock. 
and then, you know, three weeks after my husband died, we, my daughter got married and moved away, moved five hours away. So that was huge. We didn't feel like we can move the wedding because of all the expense and the just him, his family coming from out of town, just all the logistics of it. We didn't feel like we could move the wedding and we wanted to go on with that and make it the best that we could. It was very difficult for me. I'm very happy for my daughter, but that was very trying. We got through that. So the first few weeks we had to go into wedding mode. You know, we had to we've got to, we had postponed her shower. So this is three weeks after he passed. Three weeks after he passed. Yes. So it's been about a year. I've gone through the first year. He died January 29th of 2021. So it's been a year. I can say all of the gamut of the emotions when it's sort of cliche, but it's really very sound wisdom. Don't make any huge life decisions the first year. Because how I felt at first is not how I feel now. And I even feel now that I still have so much more growing to do through this and healing to do through this. Like what has changed? Like how did you feel then compared to now? Really then for me, I needed to take care and wrap up the business side. He had a lot of business details that had to be wrapped up. He had equipment and vehicles, things I had to take care of. And that really kind of helped me focus on some things. You know, I had to go through probate with my house and some property that we own. I had to deal with that. And that gave me really something to focus on. So I wasn't just internally stewing on all my emotions. I had to, it was the end of the year at the church. So I had to wrap up all the bookkeeping things after I wrapped those up. And then I immediately switched churches and I started attending church with my son elsewhere. There's another local minister that's handling that church in Waynesboro. And so that was a huge change, you know, going from being a pastor's wife and then going to be a saint in a new, in a new church, even though I was familiar with that church, it's just a huge change. Anywhere in there, did you ever get mad at your husband? Um, I have been mad at him when I am working in the yard. <laughs> I have to go out there and weed eat and cut grass. I'm like, you have left me alone to deal with this big yard. We loved the big yard when the kids were younger. And I, and I wanted to keep my house. That was one goal that I had for for Drew's sake and just the normalcy, I felt like I changed so many other things in my life, my job, you know, I'm no longer a partner. I am a single person and, you know, changing churches and, and then Savannah left. So I felt like so many other things changed. I wanted to keep my house for that stability. Right. You had like a lot of major life changes. Yes. Yes. You didn't even All have to decide on those. I mean, right. it just, they were happening. <laughs> they just happened. Yeah. So that was a lot. So I wanted to keep my house. So I have really my heart. I loved Rusty so much. I knew how much he was struggled. I haven't. My heart is hurt that, that he is not here to still keep fighting, but I have not been mad at him. Um, really my heart. I wish I could have done more. I've probably been mad at myself. Like, why didn't I, I feel like we took it seriously. And I feel like we took the weapons out of the house when he was that bad. We made sure he wasn't alone. We had someone with him almost 24 seven for weeks and months on end. That wasn't just a short time 
You know, we tried to make sure he wasn't alone. I had talked to him about, you know, have you thought about resigning the church? Is, have you take a sabbatical? It's not to say you're not called anymore, but you need to, you need to take a break. You need to step back and heal yourself and be better and feel better. And that was just out of the question for him. He felt like his worth was tied up in his work. And if he wasn't working and being productive and being about God's business, then he wasn't worth very much. And he couldn't realize that God loved him. If he never worked a day again in his life, I don't think he understood how much God loved him and how valuable he really was to people. I know at the funeral, there was even in the middle of COVID, there were so many people at the funeral. The funeral director said, we've never seen so many people at the sim- at a cemetery before. And my kids got to see that. My kids got to see the outpouring of love and the hundreds of flowers and cards and people coming to the house and the texts and just everything. The amount of support that we had was just incredible. And my kids got to see that. You know, I don't think my husband would have realized the kind of impact he had. Every uh, law enforcement jurisdiction was represented at his funeral. It was incredible. We had Burke County officers, Columbia County, Richmond County, Georgia State Patrol had officers there, the ambulance service. It was just incredible. He loved and supported law enforcement and they loved him. My kids got to see the impact of his ministry and how he loved people. You know, even here now, a year later, people call me and text me. You probably didn't know. Rusty called me or he checked on me. My niece lost her husband about a year before my husband died in a kind of a tragic way. And she said, Uncle Rusty called me every single day to check on me and to talk to me every day. Who does that? But that's the kind of person Rusty was. He, if he thought about you, if he had an interaction with you 20 years ago and he, and you came to his mind, he was going to call you. He was going to track you down and call you and say, Hey, I had you on my mind. Are you okay? What's new in your life? That's the kind of person he was. He cared about people. He could talk to the richest person in the world and then drive a homeless person to the shelter the next day. That's just the kind of person he was. He was a very unique person. He loved people. You know, we try to instill that kind of love in our kids just to love people and give people grace. Most people are, we're just all trying to make it. You know, for me, I'm trying to make heaven my home, but I'm trying to, you know, I want as many people to come with me as possible. I want people to know that they're loved and they're valued and they have worth and that they're important. They matter to someone, you know, mattering to one person is better than feeling like you're worthless. I think just from, you know, what you shared with me, I think you did everything you possibly could. So don't ever doubt yourself on that. Yeah. Don't ever doubt yourself. Thank you. And the other thing is you still have purpose. That's right. And you still have worth and value. Right. Because there's no telling. And this is something I've learned, and I'm sure you have too. You know, the Bible talks about he exchanges beauty for ashes. Mm. And, you know, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And those midnight times and the ashes are so challenging. Right. But there comes a day when you start seeing the sunshine and you start seeing the beauty in whatever it was that was handed out. So it's not over. That's right. It's not. I do think God has a reason for everything. You know, did he orchestrate this or 
you know, plan this? No, he didn't. This was not God's will. But at the same time, if I allow him, he can take what I give him. He can take this hurt. He can take this loss and make it something amazing and make it something that will bless someone else. You know, if I don't do anything else in this world, I want to point someone to to Jesus, point them to the Lord and say, you know, it's not the end of the world. You can get past your hurt. You can get past your depression. No matter what kind of tragedy people suffer in this life, maybe they didn't lose their spouse. Maybe they lost a child or had a miscarriage or, you know, they're being abused or have suffered church hurt. I mean, those things are real. They're real. And God gives us the miracle of management. Sometimes he helps us manage and get through, you know, beautiful things can grow if we give him the the fertilizer. I know Pastor Cole is our presbyter and he spoke and he's checked on me a bunch of times and he, he said, this is the manure of life and the manure of life is what makes the flowers grow. And yes, that's very true. What would be one thing that would have been helpful And the other thing, too, you had mentioned, and this is so true, is you get on autopilot. Yes. After your husband passed away, you were having to take care. Well, one, you had to get your daughter married. Yes. And then you're having to take care of all the financial and the wrapping up all his business stuff. Right. How long did you stay on autopilot? Honestly, I think until about Thanksgiving or Christmas time, really. I, and I intentionally, I had prayed and say, Lord, you know, help me go slow, help me to be quiet in this season and not be frantic or, or making a plan. Okay. This is what I'm going to do next. This is what needs to happen. I didn't want to get ahead of God or jump ahead and just plan out the next season of my life without the Lord. I really wanted to be deliberate and let him work on me and let him deal with my heart. You know, if there were things or issues in our marriage that I needed to work through or let go of or heal from, I wanted to really give the Lord time to do that on me. You know, I do feel like I have so much more living to do. And I do feel like I have a purpose in a ministry. The Lord called me to ministry way before I met my husband. Yes, ma'am. And, you know, I followed him and worked with him and did everything I could to help him. But at the same time, that that didn't negate the purpose that I have. And so now that I'm not attached and don't have, you know, a companion, in some ways, it's very freeing. You know, when you're in a marriage relationship, you do consider them and you do compromise and you do things maybe would not have been your first choice, but you do it because you're married and you're, and you're moving together. You're moving as a unit. Now that I'm moving by myself and I'm, I'm responsible for my well-being. I'm responsible for keeping a roof over my head. I'm responsible for my, you know, my spiritual walk. I don't have that spouse to speak into my life. I have a pastor and a pastor's wife who I love dearly. And I do allow them to speak into my life. And I I have people that I trust that pray for me. But, you know, in this season, I have tried to be very quiet and just listening to the Lord. What do you really have for me? You know, what do you want from me now? What direction at first? Autopilot. Yes. Taking care of business. We made plans to be together on Thanksgiving and then Christmas. I didn't want to be at home. I've tried to anticipate times and days that might be upsetting anniversaries and just special things that we did together and make a plan for those times so that I'm not alone or I'm just doing something to change up 
change up the pattern or change up the routine. So it's not upsetting. So we have tried to anticipate things like that. But at Christmas, we made a plan to go out of town and then I wanted to be at home. Things like that, just really letting the Lord work and heal. Now, afterwards, I think we had talked about it before. Did you pursue counseling through that? I did. Yes. Actually, it was with my husband's same counselor. She approached me and offered a group sessions that she was doing. She had had, there was four people total. Sometimes there was just two of us in there, but all had suffered a suicide close to us. So we went through a workbook together for about six months. It was very helpful. I didn't pursue any kind of individual counseling because I was doing that. And I have recently seen a counselor again because of my mother moved in with me. I'm glad that she's here and that I have a home for her, but it's been a different, totally different challenge and change. Um, And I love her. So I did speak to a counselor again, like help me manage, you know, this transition. This is another transition. We had talked about it for years, but I was just expecting my husband to be here too. I was looking forward to my empty nest years to be with him and get to know him all over again. But now he's not here and she is. And I want to appreciate her. We haven't lived together since I was 18 years old. But yes, I did seek counseling after my husband died. My church has offered, we had several losses in the Augusta church the same year. Of course, 2020 was a lot of loss for a lot of people. So we did do some grief classes there at church, which was super helpful. It's not a grief share. I had researched grief share and was going to do that. There's a couple local churches that offer that where I am, but when I started going to the grief grief class, so I did that instead. I did not do grief share, but then my church was sponsored. It was just a group of us that got together, was facilitated by a counselor that is in our church and was very helpful. It was good for all of us. They had some COVID losses and things like that. What would be one helpful thing if you could have heard anything from anybody? What would be the one helpful thing you would have wanted to hear or had heard? You know, I feel like I have been very blessed and I have been very intentional. I've had a lot of helpful things. Take time. How you feel at the beginning is not how you're going to feel a year from now. And I think that is so true. I managed and took care of the things that I had to as it came. For me, in my mind, how it works, I needed to get rid of all the clutter and wrap up the loose ends. I know some people, it's comforting for them to, oh, I don't want to change anything, or I want to walk in and the bedroom is exactly the same as when they left it. And that wasn't helpful for me. That didn't work for me. I needed to clean out and change out. It was helpful for me to hear how you grieve is right. It's just how you grieve. You have emotions. There's no timetable on it. Either. Right. No timetable. Feel your emotions. Don't try to hold them back. If you're having a tough day, recognize that you're having a tough day. You're emotional. Try to pinpoint what's exactly making you feel emotional. Did you hear a song that was special to you? You know, is an anniversary coming up? Did you have your favorite meal? Figure out what is causing your emotions to be in an uproar and just deal with that. You don't try to bury them or ignore your feelings. Because they'll pop up later. They will. When you hold them down, it makes it worse. It just prolongs that pain for another day instead of just, okay, today's just a tough day. And I've done that 
my coworkers that work have been very flexible with me. And I can say, you know, I'm just emotional today. I'm just letting y'all know. I just woke up and I'm emotional. Now I was working for the city when my husband died. I took about a week off. I had been sick the whole month of December with COVID. I was, I was pretty sick. I had pneumonia. So I was out almost a whole month of work um, in December of 2020. Then my husband, my son, my brother-in-law and my father-in-law all were diagnosed with COVID in January of 2021. They all recovered from that, except my brother-in-law was very sick for several months and was hospitalized for a long while anyway. So I had already missed a bunch of work. They were very good to me. I took about a week off when my husband died. And then I took a week off for the wedding. I had already planned on taking that week off. And they were like, Kristen, you do whatever you need to do. So they were very, very, very good to me. The new job I took, I actually was offered a job through someone I'm connected to at church. I didn't really know him. I knew his wife. I've known her for years. We didn't go to church together, but from another church. And he said, you literally just came to my mind. And I thought to call you about it. He talked to me and I had a lot of experience in the customer service type role. That's how I got the job. So he knew me and knew my situation and said, whatever you need, we'll be here for you. And they have been, they've been good to me. I've been very blessed. I have felt God's favor many times, not deserved, but just so many different things. I can tell stories of God's provision. So many people wanted to help at the funeral. People were sending me money and giving me money. And I was getting upset. Like, I'm okay. We lived very frugally and practically. You know, why are people sending me money? Why are they doing this? Brother Maddox was like, it's okay. Just accept it. You're going to need it. You're going to have so many financial changes. You're going to need extra money. Just be thankful for it. These are seeds that you've sown in the kingdom. Let God bless you. Brother Maddox and Brother Cole really encouraged me a lot through that time. It's okay. You know, don't be embarrassed or feel inferior or feel that people are just pitying you because I don't want anyone's pity. That's not helpful. But other people that had experienced death or knew that I was going to need that help. It helps you get through. It helps. I did need that money. I, I didn't realize it, but when you're, when you're going from, from two incomes to one, he made three times, four times as much money as I did. That's a huge change. Things like that happen. God, just so much provision and he has provided for me. And I've realized that I've gone back and read that word that he gave me the morning that Rusty died. He has fulfilled that to me in Isaiah 54. Yes, I have had to endure some things. This has not been easy at all, but the Lord has made it. He has allowed me to keep going when I've wanted to say, okay, I'm done. I can just sit home and, you know, I can just stay in the bed and bury my head in the covers. And the Lord's like, no, don't do that. There's more for you. You can make it. You can keep going. You can keep smiling. Somebody needs a hug. The Lord has said, it, you know, keep going. He's every time I have needed something, something has come in the mail. I've had a phone call and the Lord has reminded me, I've got you. I've got your back. I've got your kids. You can make it. So God has been so, so good to me. As we wrap up, I want you to talk to that person who they may be a pastor's wife or been involved in ministry. It also may be a a guy, a man Mm -hmm. whose spouse had completed suicide. I want you to talk to that person who's 
dealing with that? I will say, don't be ashamed or afraid to take time for yourself and to rest. Rest is huge. You need rest for your body and your mind. And don't be frantic. You don't have to replace what was lost, whether that is through another person or through activity or stimulating. Take time and experience that loss, that hole that is there. Sometimes when you get a wound, it has to bleed for a little while to get the infection out and get the pain out. It's got to heal. I mean, it's got to bleed and then it can form a clot and a scab and it can heal over. It's okay to take that time to allow that to take its course. You know, be patient with yourself. Be patient with the Lord and let him heal and let him touch you. Let him minister to you. There is a balm in Gilead that is miraculous. And I believe that if I can speak to before you get to that situation, I wish my husband would have taken a rest. I wish he would have taken a sabbatical or even resigned for him. That was out of the question. He didn't want to give up. He felt like giving up his ministry. And it's really not. It's not giving up your ministry to rest. It's not giving up your ministry to have hobbies outside the church. It's important to take care of yourself mentally, spiritually, physically. Be physically healthy is important to your emotional and spiritual health. It is. Don't neglect those things and don't feel sorry about it. Don't feel bad about doing that because it, it's important. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Yes, ma'am. It really touched my heart. And I think everything you said will reach somebody. You just never know who the person is. I hope so. They will. If you know somebody out there, their spouse has completed suicide, have them share this episode with them. You know, let them know that there is hope and they can get through another day. And if you are the one is in the middle of this stage of life, just know you're not alone. Right. And that there will be people that reach out to you. Just like with Kristen, how she said people reached out to her when she least expected it. You do have value and you do have worth. So until next time, everybody, have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Real Talk 238 podcast for this week's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Real Talk 238 podcast, please subscribe so you will be notified when new episodes are released. If you would like to leave a comment, or there is a topic you would like discussed on the Real Talk 238 podcast, you can drop an email at therealtalk238 at gmail.com. You can also find the Real Talk 238 podcast on Facebook and Instagram listed as at the Real Talk 238. As a reminder, the Real Talk 238 podcast is not a substitute, nor does it replace therapy. Always seek the advice of your physician or a qualified licensed mental health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental health disorder. Until next time, have a blessed day.